Good morning, my name's Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here at the Church of the Incarnation, and I'm glad to get to be with you this morning. Um, This is a very political passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 11. It's about government and justice. And um, there's no way in the world that I could preach with integrity on this and not talk about our current setting. So let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would give me your spirit and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. Last Friday night in Oakland, a fire raged in a rundown warehouse, if you've been watching the news. It appears that various groups of artists had taken up residence there and were working there and partying there, and they're still counting the bodies. The last estimate I saw this morning was they think there may be 40 people dead in the fire. Yesterday, a major investigative report was published that found black Americans have been killed in police chases at a nearly double rate to what is expected based on their percentage of the population. And that in America, a black driver is more than twice as likely as a white driver to be chased by police for a minor offense. And the chase ends in these particular situations in death. Three days from now, our nation will mark the 75th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which left over 2,000 people dead and more than 1,100 wounded. And in the midst of all of this tragedy and all of this injustice and all of this violence, we've listened to this remarkable vision that God gives us through the prophet Isaiah. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. Isaiah chapter 11 is the vision of a future free from violence, free from bias, free from war. A future where we live on this earth with genuine security and safety. No threats of violence, no injustice, no vulnerability. Life on this earth, it's life set free from both human injustice and natural violence. This is not simply a hope beyond the world, it's a hope for the world. It's a foundational vision for Christianity. This is the hope of which Paul speaks when he says we live by faith, hope, and love. His hope there is this. It's not a vague, generic optimism. It's a hope with a specific content and a specific shape. It's hope for life lived this way on this earth. A hope. A trust, a confidence that there's coming a day when God will make everything right. One day, and you can feel it in this passage, there will be a cosmic sigh of relief. We hear it from the lambs. 
and the wolves. And it's what we've all been waiting for in this world of ours that has grown old in sophistication and cynicism and violence. Don't you long for peace? Let's look together at this remarkable vision God gives us of where he's taking this thing. Isaiah chapter 11. Let's walk through it for a few minutes. Verse 1. There shall come forth a stump, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now to really get at what's going on here, it's helpful if you've been reading the Advent passages. It's helpful if you've been reading through the book of Isaiah up to this point. You see, Israel has been utterly let down by corrupt, inept government. Israel's monarchy, ruled by the house of David. This royal family started out pretty good, if you know the story of David. But as time went by, David's successors, his offspring, proved more and more a disappointment. Some of them in their character and some of them in their lack of aptitude at governing. Look at chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 23. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Over and over, we see this indictment laid at the feet of the government, the rulers of Israel. They failed. The entire system of justice in Israel has gone to the dogs. And as a result, the land is filled with violence, oppression, and murder. All because rulers abuse their power. They abuse the needy, the ones they're supposed to protect. The people with authority were preying on the weak rather than protecting the weak. They rape strangers instead of welcoming them. And God knows this. He hears the cry of pain. He hears the cries of the poor and the weak who are being treated unfairly, who are not getting justice. And Isaiah, the prophet of God, just like John the Baptist, he speaks out against the abuse of authority. He warns the house of David. He's been taking a firm stand against the government. And through Isaiah, God has been warning the government that they must repent or, very clear, they will be cut down. That metaphor is used throughout the first 10 chapters. So when you arrive at chapter 11 to a stump, that's what it's talking about. God said to them, I will use the nation of Assyria like an axe to cut down the mighty tree of Israel. So when you get to chapter 11 and it starts with a stump, this is Israel. All that remains is a stump. This is what John the Baptist was referencing with his language about axe and tree. But God promises that from the stump of Israel, he will raise up a new king. And this king... Look what it says about him in in Isaiah chapter 11, back to our passage, verse 2. It says about him, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He's going to have these incredible gifts that are required to govern well. Real gifts for the real task of exercising political, governmental authority. The kind of authority, the kind of wise leading that cuts through the clutter, cuts through the corruption, cuts through the greed and all the inefficiency. And look at the middle of verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Parents, have you ever walked into a conflict with your children and after you're told what happened, you still don't know what happened? This is the gift of a great judge who not based on the surface, but on what really happened. He sees it. And he makes judgment. This king is capable of recognizing the real issues and giving effective remedies. And his character and his ability line up. Uh, Castro passed away. Been reading all these articles about Castro. He had a famous statement. He said that history will justify the means he used. Isn't this the Marxist line? That sometimes, isn't this the Jeffersonian line? That sometimes violence is justified to get us to where we need to be? That was Castro's line. And every dictator. But not this king. This king, his character and his means are righteous. They all line up. And his means are not only good, they're powerfully Accurate and effective. And the primary way this king gets the job done is through justice. Look at verse 4. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. His pronouncements of judgment will protect the protectionless and condemn the wicked. Remember what we read back in Isaiah chapter 1. We read about the government, the leaders of Israel, who failed to judge the fatherless and the widow to correct oppression when it surfaced. God had given very specific instructions to the people of Israel about government, what government is for, a theory, a theology of government. And and at the heart of the job of government is that the poor, the helpless, and the outcasts must be given protection against the aggressors by the government. The authority of government resides in the practice of judgment. Jump over to, stay where we are in Isaiah 11, but go to the left a few pages to Proverbs chapter 29. This is all over the Old Testament. Proverbs chapter 29, just two quick places. Verse 4, 
By justice, a king builds up the land. Oh, if Castro had believed that. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Isn't this what we see over and over when corruption reaches a critical mass in government? Whether it's my home city of New Orleans or many other nations in this world, that the, 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 the place itself stops flourishing. Look at verse 14. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. So back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. God is promising Israel that one day he will raise up a king in whose hands the concerns of the most vulnerable will be safe. Look at verse 6. Notice what happens when such a king is enthroned. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. This king will say no to all that stands against the good, the true, and the beautiful. And he will say yes to life and the world itself in all of its fullness. The whole picture is amazing. But look closely at verse 6, the first phrase. The wolf shall, see that next word? Dwell with the lamb. Now, This part of the Bible is originally written in Hebrew. And this word in Hebrew, it's fun. It's fun to say, ger. That's it. It means to sojourn. It means to dwell as a newcomer. It means to be a stranger who is welcomed and protected by the sacred rules of hospitality. It is the word for the undocumented citizen. The immigrant whose survival in a foreign land depends on the goodwill of the citizens. That's the word. Can you see this remarkable image? The lamb is the host. The weak is the host of the strong. The lamb is calling out to the wolf. Come in. Welcome. It's the image of the strong becoming dependent on the weak. The wild animals are guests of the domesticated animals. This is amazing. That much security. That much safety. That the lamb cries out. Come dwell here. Come here, wolf. Stay here. I will host you. What an incredible image. And jump down to verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. You know what's happening here? God is inviting us to imagine the end of evil at every level. Can you imagine that? 
to imagine this world healed, this earth a beautiful healing community, to envisage this world vibrant with life and energy and and incorruptible beyond the reach of death. Because death doesn't exist, the lamb can say to the wolf, come stay in my home. He's imagining, he's calling us, God is to hold in our mind's eye a world that has been reborn, set free from slavery to corruption, free to be truly what it was made to be. Violence will be abolished. The weak will have no need to fear the powerful any longer. What more evocative image than of this lamb playing host to this wolf? Which other places in Isaiah, the word wolf, it's often used with this phrase, tearing the prey. The the weak no longer fear the powerful because the powerful are kept within their bounds by what? The judgment of the king. They're kept within their bounds by the justice declared statements and rulings of the government. The harmless ones will no longer fall victim to the deceitful because the deceitful will no longer have the opportunity to get away with it. And the harmless ones will have a strong advocate who will be positioned as a protective rampart. The world, because of the king acting this way, will be at peace. And notice in the second half of verse 9, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Notice the prerequisite for this peace. Knowing Yahweh. Our Bibles translate this, the knowledge of the Lord, but that word knowledge is an infinitive construct, which for those of you who are grammarians, this is a verbal noun. It's a noun that has more energy than a lifeless state of being. It's more alive than the abstract word knowledge. A good translation is the earth shall be full of the knowing of Yahweh. As waters come, everywhere you go, people know Yahweh. Everywhere you go, people are learning more and more about the king, who he is and what he's like and what his will for this world is. And then we get to verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This impossible to achieve, but actually achieved natural peace and international peace has its point of origin in God's righteous king who rules with justice. Now, who is this king? Who is such a king? I would vote for him. Would you not? Oh, for that king to be on the ballot. It's Jesus. Let me show you something really, really cool. It's in verses 6, 7, and 8. Verses, verse 6 is structured parallel to verses 7 and 8. Let me show you what I mean. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Let's call that the A statement. It is parallel to verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Now go back up to the middle of verse 6. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Let's call that the B statement. It's parallel to the middle of verse 7. Their young shall lie down together. You see, it's the same thing happening in both statements. And then the C statement, back up in verse 6. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf 
together. Now look at the C statement in verse 7, the last of it. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. All of these statements are parallel. But look at the D statement. The last phrase of verse 6. A little child shall lead them. Now what is the D statement of the second parallel? The nursing child shall play over the whole of what? The cobra. Mm. The winged child shall put his hand on what? The adder's den. What's going on here? What's happening is that from the first stanza, verse 6, to the parallel stanza, verses 7 and 8, there's a surprising advance. From the first section to the second section, what unites the wild and domestic animals, the predators and the prey, is the young child who can reconcile antagonists because he has power over the snake. This is Jesus. This is Jesus all the way through the Bible. This is the promise given in Genesis 3. To the woman that your seed will crush the head of the snake. This is the promise we're told about in Revelation that Christ will defeat the dragon. This is what we we saw in our mind's eye when David threw the the stone and it hit the scaly chested giant in the head who landed down and then had his head cut off. This is Christ. This is who brings this kind of peace. Jesus is this. Now go back and look at at the end of verse 10. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Do you know what this means? It means that Jesus is the desire of nations. This means that he is what the nations of the world have longed for. Peace, justice, freedom, a voice, and a vote, health. And around and above all of these, love and real satisfaction for the hungers of the heart. In verse 10, we see all of the nations streaming to King Jesus. They are not bowing down before a nebulous power, but before a real person. A king who is a leader of human beings so that they can fulfill their story because humans were told to have dominion over the animals. What is this that they're inquiring about? Questions of law? No. It is much deeper. Jesus is what they've desired. The long and particular histories of particular nations are finding their fulfillment in Christ. The long and convoluted stories of your family are finding their fulfillment in Christ. The long back stories, the myths, the deep desires of every nation, every tribe finds that all of its pledges that have been made and broken are fulfilled in Christ. Every nation, every tribe, every community finding its own particular history leads to Christ. Not artificially, not like a conjurer pulling a rabbit out of, the, out of a hat. No, not like Jesus is the answer for all your questions. No, but in a deep and magnificent way. 
Jesus is the truly human one, the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why they're streaming to him. Jesus is the living bread in whom all the hungers of the heart are satisfied. That's why they're streaming to him. This is what the last phrase is telling us. Whoever comes to the place of rest has reached the goal and can live, truly live. Isaiah 11 is a vision of this world as it should be. As we all, Democrats and Republicans, Libertarians and I will never vote a day in my life, folk. This is, the, this is where we all find our deepest desires fulfilled Violence abolished, peace at last, a world full of justice and joy and the beauty. And the way this is accomplished is by God setting King Jesus in charge of it all. And this vision has to be translated into how we act today. This vision... See, Isaiah is standing among the rubble of Israel saying, based on what will be, we can learn how to act today. This vision is the pole by which we must set our compasses so that we can find the way forward today. Four actions we must do in light of this hope of glory. I'll name them real quick and then I'm going to walk through them. We must imagine it. We must pray for it. We must work for it. And we must politic for it. Number one, we need to imagine this. We need to see the future for what it will be. And that requires imagination. It's imagination that takes your mind's eye around the corner. It's imagination that goes down the road, over the sea. We need to learn to imagine a world without evil, a real world. But how can we do this? How can we really believe in the impossible possibility of a new, renewed, transformed creation? How can my children want the Lord to come because this life will be even better? How can we really believe That the coming king will not only do what the world thinks is impossible. It will be more real, more physical, more tangible, more embodied, more social than this life now. How can we believe, really believe that there is coming a time when we will have physical life without death? How can we really believe That the old practice of the big ones eating the little ones is not the wave of the future. We need our imaginations for this. And for that, we need help. To imagine something so impossible, we need help. We need help because our imaginations (coughs) have been shrunken and starved by the long winter of secularism. Who will help us? Anita will help us. Mia will help us. Zeke will help us. Jesse will help us. Levi, the artist. You're the only ones who can help us here. 
We need the artist to awaken and enliven and point our imaginations in the right direction. We need you to paint and draw and write and compose something that doesn't exist so that we can actually believe it. It is the stories, it's the art that shapes the architecture, the structure, the geography of what we believe is possible. We need poets and writers and painters and playwrights and filmmakers and musicians and fashion designers and interior decorators. You are the source. You're our, the land landscape of our mind's eye, you cultivate what we dare to believe can be. Christian artists need to lead the way beyond the sterility, beyond the brutalism, beyond the vacuousness and the skepticism, beyond all the dead ends of modern art. We need you to rescue our imaginations. Help us to imagine in the midst of the present evil age, help us to imagine the end of evil. Help us to imagine in an age which, is not, which not only has evil gone away, but help us to imagine a time where even the vestiges and the memories of evil will be gone. This is the great gift of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. Don't you get to the end, the last book, the, the last battle, and he starts talking about farther up and farther in, and don't you just want it? Don't you want that life where you swim with dolphins and run with cheetahs? Don't you want at the end of the Lord of the Rings when life is just, don't you want that moment? Art at its best not only draws attention to the way things are, but to the way things will be so that we can live in that direction, to the way things will be when the earth is filled with the knowing of Yahweh as water covers the sea. We need to imagine this. Second, we need to pray for this. Prayer is key. That's why we read all of Psalm 72. Psalm 72, it's, it's what we did earlier. It's a prayer for the king to fulfill the obligation of justice. Remember that. Look back at Psalm 72. Look back at It's in your worship guide or you can turn there in your Bible. Look at what we prayed. Verse 1, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. And drop down to verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. We've got to pray this for our president and our president-elect. Isaiah 11 is just one of many places in the Bible where we see that Christianity cannot be reduced to personal privatistic salvation. The point of the Bible is not merely life after death in some spiritualized sense. If that was the case, then the vision would actually collude with death. It would let death have the last word. But no, the biblical vision is of Christ overcoming death. When we think of a world unreachable by death, we here in the West, as children of Plato, we tend to think of a non-physical world. But the truly remarkable vision that Isaiah is holding up here is of an incorruptible physical world. An unkillable physical world where you can really touch and really run. And Sloan can really skateboard. And Shay can really sing. And you can do all those things you really like doing where you actually do them. 
This is the astonishing vision. New creation is what matters. It's a new kind of world with a new kind of physicality, which will not be a physicality that decays or dies. It will not be subject to the seasons and endless sequences of death and births. God's new world will be the reality toward which all of the beauty and the power and the great experiences you've had in this life point. Not as metaphors, but as hors d'oeuvres. Actual experiences that are pointing to something that will be an actual experience. Because they, will, they point to a world that will not be less physical, but more physical, more solid, more utterly real. A world in which the physical reality will wear its deepest meanings on its face. A world filled with the knowing of Yahweh as waters cover the sea. Being a Christian is not a matter of sitting back and enjoying this vision. It's not a matter of sitting back and enjoying your forgiveness. It is more than that. It is, a, it is about the unending struggle in the mystery of prayer. The struggle to bring God's wise healing order into the world now. The single greatest tool you have for that is prayer. We pray because God acts differently if we don't. We pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Being a Christian is about praying for the victory of the cross to be implemented now as anticipation of the final renewal of all things. It is in prayer that we become most fully human. Because it is in prayer that we stand over the broken world and act as stewards of the Creator. But it's not the only way. We also labor for God's kingdom by getting to work in our community for healing and restorative justice. This is a primary Christian calling. Every Christian is called to work at every level of life for a world in which reconciliation and restoration are put into practice. And so by doing that, we are anticipating the day when it will be all over the world restorative and just the cry for justice in this world must be taken up by the church and put to a megaphone and amplified so that governments and those with power are held accountable to do what their power was meant for this is the proper response to the living God So we need to learn to imagine the remarkable renewal of all things and we need to pray for it and we need to work for it. And finally, we have to politic for it. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been entrusted to King Jesus. That means that every person with authority is accountable to King Jesus. All earthly authorities, moms, dads, eighth graders to sixth graders, bosses, employers, all all earthly authorities are accountable to King Jesus and we must use authority responsibly 
And we must hold government accountable for bringing God's wise, merciful justice to bear in this world. Because if it doesn't, evil does not stay in check. As Christians, we are under obligation both to honor the ruling authority, whatever it may be, and to work constantly to remind that authority of its God-given role, which is to do justice and to love mercy and ensure that the weak and the vulnerable are properly looked after because God cares passionately about the weak and the poor and he intends that there should be governments and authorities who can keep in check those who through greed and force would otherwise exploit the poor. A fundamental job of government according to the Bible is to ensure the vulnerable get fair treatment. The vulnerable. Look back at Isaiah 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. It's not our word for poor. It's a different word for poor in a different culture in a different time. This word is not about economic poverty. It's about social status. It is about those who find themselves that because of their social status, they have a diminished ability to secure fairness. It's a word that describes socially disadvantaged people with no influence, to whom no one pays attention. People who are, a better translated phrase could be, lightly esteemed. We must speak the truth to our president and our president-elect and our mayor and our city council. Authority exercised righteously brings life and healing and it makes the land fruitful. Now I'm going to close by talking about our president-elect. I'm not going to talk about Hillary. She's not the president-elect. And I'm not going to Leave her out because I would think she would have made a great president. I don't. But the election's over. And Donald Trump has been elected to office. We don't know what he's going to do. He has no political track record. He's not served a single moment in office of any kind. But he has been in the spotlight for a very long time. We have extensive knowledge of his history. And it is a history of disregard and aggression and malice toward ex-wives, opponents, contractors, women, and the poor. Now, I know there's a number of people in our church who voted for Trump. And I know there's a number of people in our church who voted for Hillary. And I know people in our church who voted for Trump who told me they don't in any way approve of his character. And they they voted for him with sadness. And And I know of people who said the exact same thing about Hillary. 
But what do we do with a President Trump who has this history? If past words and actions are at all indicators of what, where we might be headed, then we have good reason to be afraid for immigrants, Muslims, people of color, and women. If we base it on his track record. Now, everyone knows the massive support and endorsement that Mr. Trump received from those who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. Regardless of how we feel about him or how we voted, our tribe played a large role in putting him in office. And America knows that. And my greatest fear is that a verdict has been reached with regard to the church that we too are misogynist. That we too, that we approved of that. Now, I know that those of you who voted for Trump in this church, some of you have told me, you don't approve of that. I'm talking about our reputation now in this secular society. I saw a bumper sticker leaving church last week. It, it had the fish on there. It says, I'm a Christian. It had all these Christian things. And then it said, it's the law. If you're not a citizen, get out. That is what some people now believe the evidence says about us. And it's not true about us. Not those of you in this room that I've talked to about this. So what do we do with this? We remember this vision that Christ is making all things new and he will have victory over everything that is broken. And so we pray for Mr. Trump. We pray that God will, like in Isaiah 11, pour out his wisdom on him. We pray for him because prayer works. It's not, it's not a puny answer. We pray that God would pour out wisdom and mercy and grace on our new president. He could serve our nation well. God has done much more with much less. History is filled with surprises. We don't know how it's going to turn out. God has given us his word to guide us in our prayers. The immigrants must feel safe. Women must feel safe. The poor must feel safe. And to every piece of evidence that they don't, we, in, we tempt the judgment of God against us as a nation. So let's pray. Let's stand up in just a moment and be who we were made to be. And pray for God's kingdom to come. And his will to be done. And for the vulnerable and the weak in this land. To be able to act like the lamb. Safe and secure. Artists, help us to believe this is possible. Please stand.